Good morning. If you turn with me to the passage in which today's scripture is based, <clears throat> you were here last week. It's the same passage with the exception of those last two verses that I read last week. So we're going to go with Genesis chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verse 1. We're going to skip around a little bit, uh, but we're going to end and land the plane at chapter 2, verse 3, all right? The first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, allow me to read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation. Plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky, So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 28. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And this is God's word. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 give us a framework to understand this world that God had created. What he created, why he created it, how it broke, and how he healed it. And, and last week, we said that if you believe, this is really a, a part two of last week. Last week, we said that if you believe in biblical creation, there are lots of implications. And we covered three of them last week, but we're going to go over just a few more, like five or six more uh, today. So we're going to review the framework very quickly, and then we're going to touch on several implications uh, today. First, just a quick review of the framework. God said on days one, two, and three, he created the kingdoms. That's what we said last week. Day one, verse three to five, he created light. Day two, verses six and seven, he created an expanse, right, which separated essentially the sky from the water. Day three, verses nine to ten, dry ground, which he called land. These kingdoms were created first. And then parallel to these kingdoms, Days one and three, God created on days four and four to six, he created the kings over these kingdoms. So parallel to day one, right, light, that's the kingdom. On day four, verse 14, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Parallel to day two, on day five, he created the sea creatures, the birds. And then parallel to day three, he creates land, right, day three. Day six, he creates animals, And then on verse 26, he says, let's create man. Let us create man in our image. And then on the seventh day, he rests. Man was created to reflect the image of God as a vice king, a vice ruler. God, in his covenantal relationship with man, sets him over the the king, a vice king over the world, over the earth, to rule over the earth. And he gives him three ordinances in verse 28. Thus, the precursor in many ways of a concept of law, be fruitful, work, increase in number, right? So you're going to have some family there, right? Rule over the earth. Rule over the earth. But never apart from God as the ultimate king. And so God being the king in his covenantal relationship with man, set up as a vice king to rule over the earth. That is the work that we do. That is why we do it. In essence, Because he had a covenantal relationship with God, the entire world, because it's been created in this covenantal framework, we have the king of kings establishing a lesser king to rule over the kingdom. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. That's the framework. It's got implications. We talked about three of them last week. The first thing that we're going to look at today is that Redemption, if you believe in biblical creation, redemption has a much broader meaning. There's a broader meaning to redemption. The ancients, they saw the physical world as bad. Physical world is bad. Seminarians, those of you entering seminary, you're going to learn about this, right? Historically, in those days, the ancient world, physical world was bad. Western religion today, right, there's almost a shame of the body, a shame of sex. It's hidden. It's probably, there's a, the physical world is rotting and decaying. So the physical world, our bodies are bad. Eastern religion says what? 
the physical world isn't real. The only thing real is what is spiritual. And so whether you're coming from an Eastern context, a Western context, an ancient context, a modern context, the physical world is either not real or bad. And the spiritual world, there's a great desire today to connect with the spiritual world because that's the ultimate reality. But what do you see here in Genesis 1? What do you see? God is forming animals, material. He's creating the world. It takes the first three days to create these vast kingdoms. He's creating material reality. And at the end of each day, what does he say? At the end of the first day, bad? No. He says it was good. One of the great lessons of Easter is what? Jesus rose spiritually from the dead, bodily from the dead. And that means that salvation is not just from your spirit, physical into the spiritual world, but God's renewal, his restoration of both the physical and the spiritual. And God is the king of both. He's going to renew both. Jesus says, I am making everything new. So on one hand, what's the implication? On one hand, if you're saying you need spiritual healing, talk about brokenness, spiritual healing, but you have no regard for the brokenness of the city, the brokenness of your environment, the earthly kingdom, or you have no regard for the way the justice system is or the educational system is or your community is, you may view Jesus as a personal savior, but do you view him as your creator, as the creator? Do you view him as Lord? Do you view him as king? On the other hand, if you believe simply that Christianity is primarily about pursuing social justice, a concern for the city, caring for other people, loving others, if that's all it is, but you never listening to people, you're never honest about your own sin and a need for God's grace, and you don't surrender all the parts of your life, the facets and dimensions of your life to Jesus. You may see Jesus as the creator of the universe. You may see him as the king of the universe, but do you see him as your creator? Do you see him as your savior, as your redeemer? Salvation is not just a spiritual redemption of the soul that you've already received when you've become a Christian, but it's a holistic, a broader redemption of everything that is broken in your life, in the city, in the world around us. That's the not yet. You've already received this redemption and salvation in Christ, but it's broader than that. There's a holistic redemption that Jesus is making all things new. This is the end of oppression. This is the end of, of chauvinism. This is the end of injustice. This is the end of crime. This is the end of poverty. This is the not yet. Notice what's our calling. Jesus' disciples, his apostles, they don't just sit. They were redeemed spiritually. They don't just sit and wait around and just do worship in their homes. That's not what they do until he returns. When the Holy Spirit came, the, the Bible says he came with power, and he gave them power. So this already renewal that they experienced gave them confidence 
to approach the not yet renewal as their hope and as their calling. So on one hand, there was evangelism and repentance and faith and renewal and worship. But then on the other hand, they confronted injustice in people's homes in that context, in their society in that context, in their culture in that context. It was very broad. It was broad, much broader. The second thing we see is then the importance of community. Great importance of community. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Later, in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, we see in this call to worship today, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were created. Through Him, all things were made. All things came into being. So in the beginning, you have God and the Spirit of God and Jesus, the Word. Our God is a triune God. Three persons. You got to kind of wrap your mind around this. Three persons of equal power, equal dignity, yet very unique, complementary, different roles, and yet one God. And they created the world together. In other words, God by nature is community. Have you ever been lonely? That desire for a relationship, that desire for a community, it can become a very selfish and powerful thing in your life. You know why? Because God by nature is community and we were created in the image of God. You see that? At the very essence of God, then, is a relationship. Why, it's why relationships are so powerful, because we are created in his image. God doesn't have relationship by nature. He is relationship by nature. That means that God, by nature, by nature, is others-focused. By nature, he is love. Now, if God was universal, personal, if he was not a triune God, if he was not the Trinity, love would not be at the center Love would not be at the heart of it. But throughout the Bible, what do you see? The Father, the Son, the Spirit pointing to each other, magnifying one another, glorifying one another, doting on one another. What does that mean? At the very essence of biblical creation, there is relationship, there is love, there is selflessness. We were made for that. We are called to that. It's why we desire that so much in our lives. And if you really believe that God by nature is relationship, that's the end of selfishness and snobbishness and arrogance and malice. It's the end of gossip and jealousy and covetousness and lying and stealing and murder. We pretty much captured most of the Ten Commandments right there, right? You get it? Sin. The heart of God, this triune God who is king, the heart of creation is about power and control. There would be no salvation in a sense because love wouldn't be at the center. There would be a selfishness, a self-glorifying rejection of community around you. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. If God's, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, love, is at the center. That should be at the heart of your relationships. That should be at the heart of your extended relationships. There should be a consistency there, a theme of consistency working through your relationships. 
one of my favorite uh, biographies in recent years is a biography about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, we all know, modern inventor, you know, modern Thomas Edison, they say. Steve Jobs growing up, where did he get this, this meticulous sense of quality in his life? They said that he used to sit at the workbench and watch his father. His father was a woodworker, a carpenter. He made cabinets. They weren't a wealthy family, but he watched and his father, he, would, he noticed that his father would take expensive wood and in the, place it in the back of a cabinet before the cabinet goes up, parts that nobody would see. And he would ask his father, why would you put the expensive wood in the back? No one's going to see it. And his father res- responds to him and says, but you'll see it. You'll know that a true artist would want the inside of the cabinet to be the same as the outside of the cabinet. Integrity. That's our design. That there's this consistency. That integrity means what? Everything's integrated. And so you would want the whole of your life for there to be a consistency in your life. Especially in the context of relationships. If it was about power and control, then it's about being right. Right? That's at the heart of a lot of our arguments. But if you really believe that love is at the center, sacrifice, surrender, glorifying one another, this should be at the heart of our community groups, at the heart of our marriages, what you, be, what you should be teaching your children, your your fellowships, what you should be demonstrating in the church and in the community at large, in your workplaces. Integrity. It's not just about how you are here. It's about how you are out there. It's not just about how this group views you. It's about how this group views you. It's not just about how your family looks at you. It's about how everybody around you. Is there a consistency? Are you consistent in the way you're living, what you're teaching, in the context of relationships, but it's so important, the importance of community. Number three, this biblical creation gives us an understanding, the basis, the foundation for our dignity. What do I mean by that? Unless you believe that everyone is created in the image of God, you cannot affirm the dignity of human life. In other words, I'm going to say it a different way. If you don't believe in biblical creation, and I'm going to get a little bit just very mildly philosophical here, so hang with me, right? If you don't believe in biblical creation, then we're just random molecules colliding by chance to make life, right? Big bang, right? Then what are we worth? If human life is just the result of violent collisions, molecules, friction, randomness and chance, natural selection and survival of the fittest, then violence is natural. Violence is nature. That is what you've been born into. Then you have to join the philosophers. Then you have to join the scholars. You have to join some of the scientists today that says that there's no reason to speak against then, no reason to mourn violence or speak against crime or poverty or rape 
or murder or injustice or oppression or war or death or disease because it's all part of chance. It's all natural. It's all part of natural selection. It's all part of survival of the fittest. Unless you affirm a creator who created the world and humans in his own image, you have no real hope against the violence that you experience on a daily basis, and there's no basis for human dignity in the world. What is right? What is wrong? What are you living for? What's the meaning of life? Nietzsche knew that when he said, in conclusion, I have found no real conclusive answer, until there is, human existence will resort to violence and immorality. And, and look, you think your way, I'll think my way. Genocide. You want to know why? Because if you're not created, if there is no creator, there is no design. There is no standard of quality. You see? There is no, Im- there is no morality. There is no law. What's the point of living a good life if we're just random molecules that have collided to become life? What's the point of love? What's the point of justice if we're just molecules and a combination of violent reactions? Then in the end, natural selection and violence wins. But look at this. In the beginning, God. And God said, let there be. And it was so. And God said, let us create man in our image. And from the beginning, through relationship, gives us law. Later, he gives his people, the Ten Commandments, laws. What are they? Laws pull you away from an individual sense of morality into a collective, family, communal conscience. Laws make a nation. That's what God was doing. When he gave us the law, he was saying, you're not just an individual entity. You're not just a family entity. You're not just a people, a type. You are a country. You are a nation. You are my people. What are those laws? Relatively, right, close to the first half of the Ten Commandments, it's about treasuring God. And a little more than the second half, you have treasuring and loving your neighbor. Later on in the New Testament, the disciples ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says what? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We're created in his image. So there's this inherent dignity, value, worth, esteem. Now that's got some major uh, implications, right? Sub-implications, right? Because if Genesis 1 says God created us in his image, what does that mean? Genesis 1 affirms the dignity of every human being in the image of God why does God love the city? I mean, it's why Genesis chapter 1 and 2 begins in a garden, but Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the last chapter, ends in a city. Why does God love the city? And the reason is because there's more image of God per square foot in the city than there is anywhere else, anywhere else in the world. It's why Metro, we didn't just symbolically or representatively place ourselves in the city. There's more image of God per square foot here. And even though we take great pains to be here, we will serve more image of God per square foot in the city than anywhere else. That's why we're placed here. That's why it's one of our core values. But that brings up two major points, right? Sub points. One, women throughout history have been subject to what? Objectification, oppression, injustice, discrimination, violence. 
By the way, I'm not talking about 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about today. We're experiencing this, right? And it's because only biblical creation inherently says women are equal in value to men. Otherwise, what philosophical, scientific basis do you have to say otherwise? Women throughout history have been subject to tremendous violence, and yet the Bible says that violence is sin. It's wrong. Women are equal in value to men. There is an inherent dignity, equal worth, equal dignity as men. The same God at the same time that says that women have different roles. Women have unique roles to make them equally unique, equally special. And their roles in the church are even different. And yet they have equal value, equal worth as men. There is the biblical basis. And only the Bible, only the Bible can affirm the worth and the role of women. And so God chooses to work through Sarah, and he makes it a point. She's a barren woman. He works through Hannah, who is a barren woman. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, it's not just the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul then affirms women. Look at the book of Romans. He affirms women and their work in the church. Truly, we need to apply this in our churches in our city, in our community, in terms of how we relate to and treat women. Now, secondly, if Genesis 1 affirms the dignity of every person, it upholds the dignity of every race. We're all created in God's image. This is a universally understood reality and application of Genesis chapter 1 throughout any Christian, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching entity. And so what we're saying is that because we're all created in God's image, there is an equal dignity of every race. No one grace is more superior than the other. Every race has tremendous, tremendous gifts and blessings, and every race has tremendous and overwhelming uh, cultural sins. There are good things and bad things about every, which means, and because they're different a lot of times, we learn from each other. We can learn from one another. Now, if Adam was established as a vice king to rule in a covenantal relationship with God as the ultimate king, then part of his calling, and we talked about this last week, part of his calling is to rule over, subdue the earth, rule it well, right? Bring order to the world well. What does that mean? as kings on earth today, right? Because Peter, the apostle Peter, in his epistle in the New Testament says what? You are a royal priesthood. You are a priestly king. We need to decry injustice and inequity and inequality and oppression in our cities, in our homes, in our societies, and this is the biblical basis. Right off the bat, Genesis chapter 1, you see that. Do you see that? Lastly, there is order in our lives. What does that mean? If you look in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water, right, over the deep. There was darkness. There was chaos. Water in the Old Testament represented chaos, mysterious chaos, the unknown, the uncertain, the void, the emptiness. 
But ever, even from the beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over the water. There was control, a sovereign control over all that was chaotic. In one of the Gospels, you see there's a storm, and the disciples, they're freaking out. These are fishermen. They're freaking out. Don't you care, Jesus? Jesus wakes up. He's sleeping. He wakes up, and he goes, <clears throat> peace. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus calms the storm. Jesus changes water to wine. The miracles in and themselves, if you really look at it, there was nothing incredibly spectacular. What was he doing? He was just bringing order to a chaotic world. That was the miracle. He was demonstrating and exercising his control as king. If you look at the order of creation, there's a magnificent order. Darkness, light, the skies and the seas, the land. He creates these kingdoms. The sun, the moon, the stars to govern the light. The sea creatures and the birds to govern the air and the seas. Animals to govern over the land and then man to govern over all. There are these kingdoms and there's kings. There's a structure and an order in creation. There's you established as the vice king. There's God, the ultimate king in this intensely love-binding, life-binding relationship that we learn about later and throughout the book of Genesis and on. But what is he saying? If you are under the rule of God, there's order. Now, I've been a pastor here for nine years. It's hard to believe. Nine years. And in these times, you know, in a given year, you counsel how many people? I don't, I don't even know. I should have, what I should have done was gone back to my records and told you, but how many people do you counsel? And you multiply that by nine years. And what goes through every pastor's heart, apart from the ache that they experience because of decisions that you're going to make or not make, you recognize that all these things can be solved if, you've true, if this person has truly placed their lives or this facet of their lives under the rule of Christ, under the rule of the king. There's a magnificent order. And if you place your life under the rule of God, there's order. There's darkness in your life, uncertainty in your life, chaos in your life. God is using and working through. He's not working despite it. He's working through that darkness and uncertainty and chaos and suffering. We've all been through it this year, this past year. The sovereign king is hovering over the waters and he's in control. If you're trying to be king on your own, because a lot of times we get impatient, a lot of times we don't like what's in front of us. A lot of times we, don't, we're, we're, we disdain and despise our circumstances, and so we want to change our circumstances. We want to switch the off switch to on, or the on switch to off, right? We want to do a lot of things. We want to take matters into our own hands. And what this text is saying is if you're trying to be a king on your own, there is chaos. But if you come under the rule of the ultimate king, it will shape you into the image of God. No matter the brokenness, no matter the disorder, no matter, uh, now, it doesn't mean that every circumstance gets healed. It doesn't mean that things miraculously uh, just resolve themselves like a 30-minute sitcom. But there will be consistency in your life. There will be integrity in your life. There will be courage in your life. There will be peace in your life. 
There will be order in your life. If you don't come to the king, life will be out of order, order and you will fall apart. And that's the curse. That's the curse. That's what happens in chapter 3. Work, relationships, family, rest, completely broken. It's like we've taken this image of God, this mirror image of God, and we've taken a bat and smashed it to pieces so you see the faint semblances of this image, and yet everything's broken. And who will bring all these pieces back together again? You know, in the book of Exodus, you have Moses. Moses goes to Pharisee. For those of you... If you're not privy or read the Bible often, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. There's a great story, right? Lots of movies that we've seen. Um, if, you, if you've ever heard the story in Exodus, Moses, he goes to the Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no. He says, no. What happens? The plagues come. You see the plagues. The Nile River turns to blood. Everything starts to die. So all the frogs come out, and then they die. And then you got the gnats, and then you got the flies. And that leads to disease of the livestock. And then everybody else catches these sicknesses and boils, right? One thing after another, you see a cascading, starting from one rejection of God as the king. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's life starts to tumble and tumble and cascade into what? Disorder. Until you get to the ninth plague. What's the ninth plague? Darkness. You know what it is? It's a rollback. Creation all of a sudden starts to roll back into darkness, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. That's what you're seeing in Exodus with these plagues. That's the meaning. It's the second to the last plague, darkness. Before God said, let there be light. Before there was God. I mean, before, not before there was God. Before God says, let there be light. Before there was creation. Trust the king. Trust his words. Trust his commands. There are people who are here who are living out the same pattern over and over of misery and chaos. Why? Because they haven't surrendered parts of their lives. Facets of their, you're discovering new parts of their lives that haven't yet truly been surrendered to the king. And that kind of resistance threatens order, brings us into chaos, the rollback into darkness. How do you address it? God made a way. On the cross, what do you see? God's one and only son. And there's darkness. Darkness over the land. And the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's this earthquake. You know what's happening? The world is rolling back into darkness and disorder, and it's coming down. It's caving in on Jesus. In the book of Exodus, the last plague after darkness is what? The death of the firstborn. So on the cross, what do you see? There's darkness, and in the death of God's firstborn. Jesus Christ is taking our place, and the wrath of God in our place, because of our sin, he's experiencing the ultimate rollback and chaos and disorder and darkness and death. The creator, Jesus, is experiencing the cosmic decreation so that we would enter into recreation, new life, rest. 
When Jesus was being baptized, we see this in several accounts in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The heavens open up. The Spirit of God is, does what? He descends on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit of God is glorifying the Son. And the Father is glorifying the Son. He says, this is my Son whom I love. In other words, what? He's good. That is the first time since Genesis chapter 1 that God looks at a man and says, good. He is good. The benediction, we call that. And yet on the cross, he says, I'm forsaken. I'm no longer good. I'm experiencing the ultimate curse, the malediction. Why? On the cross, Jesus lost community, the importance of community. On the cross, Jesus died without dignity. On the cross, he suffered oppression and injustice and violence and the cosmic disorder and rollback. And yet, do you know, he was still calling God, his God, my God, my God. He was still obeying God's command to love him and to love others to the end. To the end, Jesus Christ, faithful. He's dying, but he continues to call God his God. He trusted God. And what does he do in the midst of his dying? He doesn't say, guys, look at me. I'm dying here. I'm suffering. That's not what he does. He says, Mary, his mother, who will take care of Mary? John, you will take care of Mary. John, John, Mary, this is now your son. He's thinking about other people. He looks to the criminal. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Faithful to the end, always others focused, love at the center. Why? Why did he do that? Jesus suffered the ultimate malediction so that we would would experience the ultimate benediction. Jesus suffered the absence of God so that we would experience the presence of God. Jesus suffered the darkness of being away from God and apart from God so we would experience the lights, the recreation of God's presence in our lives. Let that sink into your uncertainty. Let that sink into your disorder. Let that sink into your chaos in life. God delights in you, and you get good. He says, good. This is the restoration of dignity. You do not give yourself self-esteem. This is, I mean, it's a whole other thing, right? You can't give yourself self-esteem. There's nobody in here that says, well, I don't care what people think. You care what people think, right? You care what your boss thinks, don't you? You care what people think. Y'all go out and, Spend nice money, good amount of money buying nice clothes, right? You care what people think. You want the applause. It's not always pathological. It could be insidious and small and very, 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 very hidden. But we care. It's because deep inside we are looking for God's satisfaction ultimately in us. It's what we lost in the garden, in creation. But every time you look at the cross, you want to give us, you know what gives us an ultimate sense of worth? God in Jesus, through Jesus, looks at you and says, good. That's why we do the benediction. It's God's assurance of a good word. It's a reminder. Come under the rule of the king. Come under the rule of the king. Plant the gospel deeper into your life. And in this great season of growth in our church, a return of sorts to people into the building, right? Sure. 
in this great season of growth. But when I was thinking about this passage and our community, I was thinking a year ago at this time when there was darkness and chaos and loneliness and brokenness and hurt and there was still relational conflict and there was still issues within the family and there were still financial struggles and uncertainty about our jobs. There was still chaos, tremendous disorder and chaos. Not to mention people were sick, people died. In this great season of growth and change, this is my prayer for our community. Plant the gospel deeper into your life. Discover new facets and dimensions where you need to surrender your life to the king. And we will experience, not just know, but you will experience the great benediction of God in Christ. Let's pray.